Hi everyone. Um, I'm going to pick up where Carolyn ended as well. When she, so it's a nice relay team that we've got here. Um, she talked about families as a site of contention and controversy in settlement in destination countries. I'm going to talk about how families can be sites of contention in the origin country itself. So just to give you a little background to my uh, paper, what we are observing in the world today are increasing numbers of independent women labor migrants. And we can see this in um, these, these streams of women migrants leaving countries from around the global south. India, China, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, the Philippines, a range of countries in South America as well. But at the same time, there are plentiful um, case studies that talk about the familial resistance that many of these independent women migrants encounter when they first broach the idea of leaving their families to go work um, elsewhere. And what, what, what this represents is a theoretical gap. We, we don't have a good theoretical understanding of what happens within women's families um, during the migration decision-making process. And this has implications not only for questions of migrant selectivity, but also in, in um, which was raised in the plenary yesterday, but also in, in terms of trying to understand the social mechanisms, the micro-level social mechanisms that are occurring within families that it can explain the independent labor migration of women. So in my paper, I'm primarily uh, dialoguing with the new economics of labor migration, uh, which I'm sure all of you are very familiar with. So I'm, I will talk about it very briefly. Um, it, it was. It was groundbreaking in, 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 for the primary reason that it introduced the, the role of the household in the migration decision-making process. But in fact, NELM theorists, as I call them, have proposed three different models of household decision-making. The first is the unified household model, which is the one that's most commonly associated with the new economics of labor migration. And the assumption here is that you have a unified household that decides collectively uh, and reaches a, a, a consensus as to which is the best family member to send overseas. Um, the second model is the household dictator model, which assumes that there's an all-powerful head of household, often the male, um, who decides on his own who's the best family member to send overseas. And a variant of this is the altruistic dictator, uh, which assumes that this uh, um, household dictator has the best interests of the family at heart and so his utility function would be the same as the joint utility function of his um, of, of his entire family and so whether or not it's a dictator deciding or it's a consensual family decision it would be the same family member who is eventually sent overseas and then the third model of, of household decision making that's been proposed by Naum theorists is, this, is what Amartya Sen satirically calls the super trader family. And the assumption here is that there are at least two different decision making entities in a household. There is the migrant themselves and other stakeholders in the family. And what happens is they come to some kind of contractual arrangement where um, they uh, family, family members agree to let the migrant go overseas, but there's a trade, an intrafamilial trade in risks. There are um, mechanisms put in place to ensure there are no moral hazard or principal agent problems, um, and that's the third model that's been put forward. All of these models have received criticism. Um, much of this criticism comes from feminist theories, uh, theorists who have argued that now um, models ignore the gendered resistance that many women migrants, migrants encounter when they bring up 
the idea of their migrating and that it ignores the role of culture and ideology in the distribution of power and, and responsibilities within a household. Um, the second model, the household dictator model, um, while it recognizes this unequal distribution of power, it too has been criticized for not giving any sense of agency, not recognizing any agency um, uh, that's held by the migrant themselves. And then finally, the third model, the super trader family model, has been criticized by Sen and others for being overly focused on economic considerations, as if that's the only thing that needs to be negotiated over. Um, so how do we reconcile Nelm and its critics? And that's what I try to do in my paper. So this is uh, a slightly simplified version of the model that I'm presenting as a variant of the new economics of labor migration. And I call it the negotiated migration model. And what I'm arguing is that what happens, basically what I'm doing is I'm disentangling the aspiration to migrate, which I, which I argue develops at an individual level from the migration negotiation that has to happen at the family or household level. Um, and what I argue is that these two things have to have to occur before any migratory action can actually take place. And, in this model, I'm setting aside capital considerations and instead focusing on the social cultural constraints that can um, impede an, a, a woman or a man's, uh, man's decision or ability to go uh, and work outside the family home. And from my point of view, there, the, the, the primary advantage of approaching the migration decision in this way is that it recognizes that individuals are embedded within power hierarchies within their families that uh, exist along both gendered as well as generational lines. Um, and even though I take an explicitly gendered approach in developing this model, I actually think that it can have value in explaining male migration as well. Um, so this is briefly a description of the study, the, the data that, um, is, that forms the basis of this model. So over the course of four years, I interviewed um, about 140 Filipino migrant domestic workers in five different countries, asking them about their migration and destination decisions. And um, these were in-depth, retrospective interviews. And one of the questions that, one set of questions that I asked them was, how did you come about this migration decision? Was it made independently or was it made in consultation with other people? When you brought up the idea of migration, did, you, did anyone say no? That's how I phrased it. Um, and if they did say no, who was this person who said no and how did you overcome it? What did you talk to them about? Um, how did you convince them to, to um, uh, support your decision to go overseas? And I recognize that my, uh, my study sample is, is flawed because I only talked to the people who actually went overseas. So I didn't talk to involuntary non-migrants and that's a, 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 a flaw in, this, in the sampling design that I recognize that I'm hoping in my subsequent studies I'll be able to fix. But I do think there was still value in the responses that I got to these questions. So um, why did I study the Philippines? Why did I study migrant domestic workers? Um, because I was, this was part of a larger study on the migration and destination strategies of migrants. I chose the Philippines because it's one of the most important um, senders, um, uh, sources of um, short-term labor migrants in the world today. Over a million Filipinos leave the country every year to work on short-term contracts. Um, and there's a culture of migration that's very institutionalized in the country. Within these, uh, this, this pool of labor migrants, domestic workers are the single largest occupational category, um, and 98% of these uh, migrants are women. 
the reason why so many women want to leave the Philippines is because the Philippine economy has been in the doldrums for a very long time. Um, in 2009, the individual poverty rate was 26.5. Female unemployment was 7.4. That might not seem that high uh, given the financial crisis in other parts of the world, but when you look at the ratio, the, the, the percentage of women in vulnerable employment, which means informal work, uh, part-time work, or work in sectors where there is no possibility of any kind of career project, uh, um, upward mobility within that particular industry, um, when that's almost half of all women workers, you get a sense of just how, uh, why they might want to consider leaving the country. And in general, there's been a pattern of declining real incomes over the last few decades. And most importantly, tertiary education is incredibly expensive in the Philippines. And there, there, um, there's a, a, a lack of a student loan program to help aspiring college students get into, uh, to support their, to fund their college education. And for mothers of children who they would like to see go to college, this is an incredibly important driver to make them want to, um, to go overseas. Now, with respect to the Filipino family, like the um, Af Afghan families, uh, I imagine, this is a very patriarchal society. Uh, there's a filial piety is incredibly strong. Um, women are still free to work outside the whole there. There's, there's, there's many women work um, outside the home, but the second shift is still very alive and thriving in the Philippines. They're all expected to come back home and take care of all of the household responsibilities. Many women are seen as the keepers of the family purse, where they manage the household accounts. And some scholars have interpreted this to mean that actually Filipino women have a lot of independence and autonomy. But other scholars have argued that this is not the case at all, that given the state of the Philippine economy, most of these women feel that they, they can't make ends meet for their households. And so what it does, this, this, the status of keepers of the family purse only adds to their stress levels, because they're constantly feeling like they can't uh, do enough for their families. There's also a very um, long-standing uh, normative tradition for unmarried daughters to take on the financial responsibility of looking after their aged parents and their siblings' children. So they become the family benefactress in some ways. So within my study sample of the, the, the people that I interviewed, 55% of participants uh, recalled encountering some level of overt resistance from a close family member, whether a parent, a spouse, a child, or a sibling. This was, for me, at least the first unexpected finding. I thought it would be a lot higher, to be honest. I was surprised that only half of my participants um, noted there was some kind of overt resistance. But when I was looking through the interview data, what I realized was that even those who did not say they encountered overt resistance still talked about asking for permission. That was a term that they used. I still had to ask my parents for permission to go overseas. Or, and, and even though they might be married, um, they would still talk to their parents and they use the language of permission. So what this, uh, this is what first gave me the inkling that there was a, 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 this process of negotiating around social and cultural norms that was taking place in the families before the migration decision uh, could actually, uh, before migration could actually take place. In, in, in terms of the husbands who were um, expressing resistance, often what the husbands would say is that they were already able to provide a sufficiently high standard of living for their families. Um, and a lot of this seemed to stem from the fear that these husbands had that they would become what's called in the Philippines house husbands. Um, 
and, and this was the case with Christine and how her husband told her that I can still provide you all of our needs, you don't need to go overseas. In the case of parents, they were much more overtly gendered in their resistance. So they would talk about how it shouldn't be their daughters to go overseas. If their daughters were married, they would tell them, no, it's your husband, he is the man, he's the one who has to be going and providing for you, you should be staying at home. Um, or there were parents who had sons who were already overseas and they had had no issues with the son going overseas, but when the daughter mentioned the desire to go overseas, suddenly there was a big problem. Um, so, and this was the case with Aisha where she says, of course, I'm not the first one in the family to go out. My brother at that time was in Saudi Arabia, but he's a guy, so my father doesn't mind. I'm a girl, so it's a big issue. And she herself was very matter-of-fact about the fact that there were double standards in terms of what she was allowed to do and what her, husband, her brother was allowed to do. Um, so what happened was that the, uh, in the interviews it became clear that in trying to negotiate around these, this um, uh, gendered resistance that they were encountering from overt or, or not or, or more implicit that these uh, women were encountering, what these women were doing is they were adopting gendered strategies to negotiate around this resistance as well. And so what I found was that they were framing their um, motivations to migrate in three different ways. They were, they were framing themselves as dutiful daughters, as a supportive spouses, and as caring mothers, that it was in the fulfillment of these roles that they needed to go overseas. And they were very clear about using that kind of language to convince their family members that it was the right thing for them to go overseas. So, um, um, so for, for the women, when they talked to me about their reasons for wanting to go overseas, it was often very multifaceted. It was never just, I want to go just for my children. There was always multiple reasons why they were going. And, and sometimes these were very individualistic reasons. But when talking with their family members and trying to convince their family members, those individual reasons were never mentioned. Instead, they always presented, they, they, they reframed their reasons for migrating as a family-based need and emphasize the shared benefits that their migration could provide for the family as a whole. And, and again, with Aisha, she told her father, don't you want to have our own house? Don't you want to have some land? I can provide that for you. And her father, as she said, he smiled bitterly because he knew that he couldn't do that himself, that he had to rely on his daughter, and so he let her go. The other way in which um, participants used a gendered strategy was presenting themselves as caring mothers. And this was important because many of the mothers that I interviewed had been criticized for abandoning their children. They were being um, told by other relatives that how can you leave your, your, your daughters, especially if they had daughters. They, the, the, the common refrain was, your daughters need a mother, you should be here looking after your daughters. And so to counter these attacks, what these women did was they, they reframed their migration decision as a way to fulfill their role as mothers. They, they basically said, the only way in which I can be a good mother, the only way in which I can provide for my children is by going overseas. Um, and, and that was the case with Diane, where she told her husband that the only way in which we can guarantee the future of our children is if I go overseas and then I can give our children a brighter future. 
Finally, um, women adopted a gendered strategy of presenting themselves as supportive wives, not only to their husbands, but also to the, the broader publics in which they, they lived. And this was because they had to battle this belief, again, that it should be the man to go overseas. And so what they did is they framed their decision as, as merely a, a common sense reaction to neutral market forces that had created a gendered overseas market that provided jobs for women but not for men. And so in the case of Matilda, she told her father who was asking her, why doesn't your husband go overseas? She told him there just aren't any jobs available. And, and, and this, uh, this narrative was useful both for the, the migrant women but also for their husbands in countering this, the, the, the common um, argument that it should be the man to go overseas. That what they could say it wasn't because the husband wasn't a good father. He wasn't. It wasn't a case that he wasn't providing. It was just what can you do? That's the market. That's why I have to go, and he has to stay. Now there were non-gendered strategies that many, uh, not many. Um, some of the interviewees that I um, I talked with also uh, mentioned adopting, but these were relatively few and far between. Um, some of these strategies were one. They just wait until the very last minute before they notified their families that they had made this migration decision. Um, sometimes waiting until the last couple of weeks. Um, other, another non-gendered strategy that was adopted was migrants telling um, their parents, trying to convince their parents that they were mature enough and, 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 and just independent enough to handle this uh, decision to go and work by themselves overseas. And finally, they tried to be as flexible as possible in the negotiation process. So for instance, they would allow their family members to veto certain destinations or veto um, the timing of their migration. They'd say, okay, I won't do it this year. If you think I'm too young, I'll wait another year and then let me do it. Or in the case of Millie, her husband just didn't want her to go to the Middle East. He was terrified about her being in the Middle East because of the, 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 the reputation that that place had. And so she, she agreed to only look for jobs in East Asia. But on the whole, most migrants were following, uh, were adopting gendered strategies in their negotiations with their families. So in, in summary, uh, what, what, I've, what I've tried to do in my paper is talk about the, um, at how it's important to distinguish between the aspiration to migrate, which is developed at an individual level. It can still be personally or socially constructed, but it develops at the individual level. And then the negotiation that occurs at the family and household level, and that's informed um, by uh, gender norms, by power um, um, assumptions about the, appro the division of labor and responsibilities within a household. And what I'm trying to show is that rather than bargaining over economic issues, the bargaining that's taking, um, taking place in the household is over values, over norms, over assumptions about um, gender roles and responsibilities. And like I said earlier, not all women experience overt resistance, but almost all of them negotiate. And that, to me, I think is, is, a, is, a, is a, a, salient, a very salient finding from my uh, research. Um, so as I said before, I, I recognize the fact that I didn't, in terms of the limitations of the study, I recognize that I didn't do any interviews with involuntary non-migrants, um, and also no interviews with, with male migrants. 
Um, and of course there are issues with retrospective interviewing and how women justify to themselves, or perhaps justifying to themselves, what they did to allow them to win over their families. So future studies that I'm planning uh, will look at both male migrants as well as try to look at involuntary non-migrants in the home countries to see whether or not they also attempted to use these strategies but unsuccessfully to really test this uh, particular model. Thank you.